Chapter 14 of The Mind and Its Education by George Herbert Betts. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Karima Ridout. Feeling and Its Functions. In the psychical world as well as the physical, we must meet and overcome inertia. Our lives must be compelled by motive forces strong enough to overcome this natural inertia and enable us, besides, to make headway against many obstacles. The motive power that drives us consists chiefly of our feelings and emotions. Knowledge, cognition, supplies the rudder that guides our ship, but feeling and emotion supply the power. To convince one's head is therefore not enough. His feelings must be stirred if you would be sure of moving him to action. Often we have known that a certain line of action was right, but failed to follow it because feeling led in a different direction. When decision has been hanging in the balance, we have piled on one side obligation, duty, sense of right, and a dozen other reasons for action, only to have them all outweighed by one single, it is disagreeable. Judgment, reason, and experience may unite to tell us that a contemplated course is unwise, and imagination may reveal to us its disastrous consequences, and yet its pleasures so appeal to us that we yield. Our feelings often prove a stronger motive than the knowledge and will combined. They are a factor constantly to be reckoned with among our motives. 1. The Nature of Feeling It will be our purpose in the next few chapters to study the affective content of consciousness, the feelings and emotions, the present chapter will be devoted to the feelings and the one that follows to the emotions. The Different Feeling Qualities At least six, some writers say even more, distinct and qualitatively different feeling states are easily distinguished. These are pleasure, pain, desire, repugnance, interest, apathy. Pleasure and pain and desire and repugnance are directly opposite or anti-agnostic feelings. Interest and apathy are not opposites in a similar way, since apathy is but the absence of interest and not its antagonist. In place of the terms pleasure and pain, the pleasant and the unpleasant or the agreeable and the disagreeable are often used. Aversion is frequently employed as a synonym for repugnance. It is somewhat hard to believe on first thought that feeling comprises but these classes given. For have we not often felt the pain from a toothache, from not being able to take a long-planned trip, from the loss of a dear friend, Surely these are very different classes of feelings. 
Likewise, we have been happy from the very joy of living, from being praised for some well-doing, or from the presence of a friend or lover. And here again, we seem to have widely different classes of feelings. We must remember, however, that feeling is always based on something known. It never appears alone in consciousness as mere pleasures or pains. The mind must have something about which to feel. The what must precede the how. What we commonly call a feeling is a complex state of consciousness in which feeling predominates, but which has nevertheless a basis of sensation or memory or some other cognitive process. And what so greatly varies in the different cases of the illustrations just given is precisely this knowledge element, and not the feeling element. A feeling of unpleasantness is a feeling of unpleasantness, whether it comes from an aching tooth or from the loss of a friend. It may differ in degree, and the entire mental states of which the feeling is a part may differ vastly, but the simple feeling itself is of the same quality. Feeling always present in mental content. No phase of our mental life is without the feeling element. We look at the rainbow with its beautiful and harmonious blending of colors, and a feeling of pleasure accompanies the sensation. Then we turn and gaze at the glaring sun, and a disagreeable feeling is the result. A strong feeling of pleasantness accompanies the experience of the voluptuous warmth of a cozy bed on a cold morning, but the plunge between the icy sheets on the preceding evening was accompanied by the opposite feeling. The touch of a hand may occasion a thrill of ecstatic pleasure, or it may be accompanied by a feeling equally disagreeable, and so on through the whole range of sensation. We not only know the various objects about us through sensation and perception, but we also feel while we know. Cognition, or the knowing process, gives us our what's, and feeling, or the affective process, gives us our hows. What is yonder object? A bouquet. How does it affect you? Pleasurably. If instead of the simpler sensory processes which we have just considered, we take the more complex processes, such as memory, imagination, and thinking, the case is no different. Who has not reveled in the pleasures accompanying the memories of past joys? On the other hand, who is free from all unpleasant memories, from regrets, from pangs of remorse? Who has not dreamed away an hour in pleasant anticipation of some desired object, or spent a miserable hour in dreading some calamity which imagination pictured to him? Feeling also accompanies our thought processes. Everyone has experienced the feeling of pleasure 
of intellectual victory over some difficult problem, which had baffled the reason, or over some doubtful case in which our judgment proved correct. And likewise, none has escaped the feeling of unpleasantness which accompanies intellectual defeat. Whatever the contents of our mental stream, we find in them everywhere present a certain color of passing estimate, an immediate sense that they are worth something to us at any given moment, or that they have an interest to us. The Seeming Neutral Feeling Zone it is probable that there is so little feeling connected with many of the humdrum and habitual experiences of our everyday lives, that we are but slightly, if at all, aware of a feeling state in connection with them, yet a state of consciousness with absolutely no feeling side to it is as unthinkable as the obverse side of a coin without the reverse. Some sort of feeling tone or mood is always present. The width of the effective neutral zone, that is, of a feeling state so little marked as not to be discriminated as either pleasure or pain, desire or aversion, varies with different persons, and with the same person at different times. It is conditioned largely by the amount of attention given in the direction of feeling, and also on the finesse of the power of feeling discrimination. It is safe to say that the zero range is usually so small as to be negligible. 2. Mood and Disposition the sum total of all the feeling accompanying the various sensory and thought processes at any given time results in what we may call our feeling tone or mood. How mood is produced. During most of our waking hours, and indeed during our sleeping hours as well, a multitude of sensory currents are pouring into our cortical centers. At the present moment we can hear the rumble of a wagon, the chirp of a cricket, the chatter of distant voices, and a hundred other sounds besides. At the same time, the eye is appealed to by an infinite variety of stimuli in light, color, and objects. The skin responds to many contacts and temperatures and every other type of end organ of the body is acting as a sender to telegraph a message into the brain. Add to these the powerful currents which are constantly being sent to the cortex from the visceral organs, those of respiration, of circulation, of digestion, and assimilation. And then, finally, add the central processes which accompany the flight of images through our minds, our meditations, memories, and imaginations, our cogitations, and volitions. Thus, we see what a complex our feelings must be, and how impossible to have any moment in which some feeling is not present as a part of our mental stream. 
it is this complex now made up chiefly on the basis of the sensory currents coming in from the end organs or the visceral organs and now on the basis of those in the cortex connected with our thought life which constitutes the entire feeling tone or mood mood colors all our thinking mood depends on the character of the aggregate of nerve currents entering the cortex and changes as the character of the current varies if the currents run on much the same from hour to hour then our mood is correspondingly constant if the currents are variable our mood also will be variable not only is mood dependent on our sensations and thoughts for its quality but in turn colors our entire mental life it serves as a background or setting whose hue is reflected over all our thinking let the mood be somber and dark and all the world looks gloomy on the other hand let the mood be bright and cheerful and the world puts on a smile it is told of one of the early circuit riders among the new england ministry that he made the following entries in his diary thus well illustrating the point wednesday evening arrived at the home of bro brown late this evening hungry and tired after a long day in the saddle had a bountiful supper of cold pork and beans warm bread bacon and eggs coffee and rich pastry i go to rest feeling that my witness is clear the future is bright i feel called to a great and glorious work in this place bro brown's family are good people the next entry was as follows thursday morning awakened late this morning after a troubled night i am very much depressed in soul the way looks dark far from feeling called to work among this people i am beginning to doubt the safety of my own soul i am afraid the desires of bro brown and his family are set too much on carnal things a dyspeptic is usually a pessimist and an optimist always keeps a bright mood mood influences our judgment and decisions the prattle of children may be grateful music to our ears when we are in one mood and excruciatingly discordant noise when we are in another what appeals to us as a good practical joke one day may seem a piece of unwarranted impertinence on another a proposition which looks entirely plausible under the sanguine mood induced by a persuasive orator may appear wholly untenable a few hours later decisions which seemed warranted when we were in an angry mood often appear unwise or unjust when we have become more calm motives which easily impel us to action when the world looks bright 
fail to move us when the mood is somber. The feeling of impending peril and calamity, which are an inevitable accompaniment of the blues, are speedily dissipated when the sun breaks through the clouds and we are ourselves again. Mood influences effort. A bright and hopeful mood quickens every power and enhances every effort, while a hopeless mood limits power and cripples effort. The football team which goes into the game discouraged never plays to the limit. The student who attacks his lesson under the conviction of defeat can hardly hope to succeed, while the one who enters upon his work confident of his power to master it has the battle already half won. The world's best work is done not by those who live in the shadow of discouragement and doubt, but by those in whose breast hope springs eternal. The optimist is a benefactor of the race, if for no other reason than the sheer contagion of his hopeful spirit. The pessimist contributes neither to the world's welfare nor its happiness. Youth's proverbial enthusiasm and dauntless energy rests upon the supreme hopefulness which characterizes the mood of the young. For these reasons, if for no other, the mood of the schoolroom should be one of happiness and good cheer. Disposition, a resultant of moods. The sum total of our moods gives us our disposition, whether these are pleasant or unpleasant, cheerful or gloomy, will depend on the predominating character of the moods which enter into them. As well expect to gather grapes of thorns or figs or thistles as to secure a desirable disposition out of undesirable moods. A sunny disposition never comes from gloomy moods, nor a hopeful one out of the blues. And it is our disposition more than the power of our reason, which, after all, determines our desirability as friends and companions. The person of surly disposition can hardly make a desirable companion, no matter what his intellectual qualities may be. We may live very happily with one who cannot follow the reasoning of a Newton, but it is hard to live with a person chronically subject to black moods. Nor can we put the responsibility for our disposition off on our ancestors. It is not an inheritance, but a growth. Slowly, day by day, and mood by mood, we build up our disposition, until finally it comes to characterize us. Temperament Some are, however, more predisposed to certain types of mood than are others. The organization of our nervous system, which we get through heredity undoubtedly, has much to do with the feeling tone in which we most easily fall. We call this predisposition temperament. On the effects of temperament, our ancestors must divide the responsibility with us. I say, divide 
the responsibility. For even if we find ourselves predisposed towards a certain undesirable type of moods, there is no reason why we should give up to them, even in spite of hereditary predispositions we can still largely determine for ourselves what our moods are to be. If we have a tendency toward cheerful, quiet, and optimistic moods, the psychologist names our temperament sanguine. If we are tense, easily excited and irritable with a tendency toward sullen or angry moods, the choleric. If we are given to frequent fits of the blues, if we usually look on the dark side of things and have a tendency toward moods of discouragement and the dumps, the melancholic, if hard to rouse and given to indolent and indifferent moods, the phlegmatic, whatever be our temperament, it is one of the most important factors in our character. 3. Permanent Feeling, Attitudes, or Sentiments Besides the more or less transitory feeling states which we have called moods, there exists also a class of feeling attitudes, which contain more of the complex intellectual element, are withal of rather a higher nature, and much more permanent than our moods. We may call these our sentiments or attitudes. Our sentiments comprise the somewhat constant level of feeling combined with cognition, which we name sympathy, friendship, love, patriotism, religious faith, selfishness, pride, vanity, etc. Like our dispositions, our sentiments are a growth of months and years. Unlike our dispositions, however, our sentiments are relatively independent of the physiological undertone and depend more largely upon long-continued experience and intellectual elements as a basis. A sluggish liver might throw us into an irritable mood and, if the condition were long-continued, might result in a surly disposition. But, it would hardly permanently destroy one's patriotism and make him turn traitor to his country. One's feeling attitude on such matters is too deep-seated to be modified by changing whims. How Sentiments Develop Sentiments have the beginning in concrete experiences in which feeling is a predominant element and grow through the multiplication of these experiences, much as the concept is developed through many percepts. There is a residual element left behind each separate experience in both cases. In the case of the concept, the residual element is intellectual, and in the case of the sentiment, it is a complex in which the feeling element is predominant. How this comes about is easily seen by means of an illustration or two. The mother feeds her child when he is hungry, and an agreeable feeling is produced. She puts him into the bath and snuggles him in her arms, 
and the experiences are pleasant. The child comes to look upon the mother as one whose especial function is to make things pleasant for him. So he comes to be happy in her presence, and long for her in her absence. He finally grows to love his mother, not alone for the countless times she has given him pleasure, but for what she herself is. The feelings connected at first wholly with pleasant experiences coming through the ministrations of the mother, strengthened, no doubt, by instinctive tendencies toward affection, and later enhanced by a fuller realization of what a mother's care and sacrifice mean, grow at last into a deep, forceful, abiding sentiment of love for the mother. THE EFFECT OF EXPERIENCE Likewise, with the sentiment of patriotism, in so far as our patriotism is a true patriotism and not a noisy clamor, it had its rise in feelings of gratitude and love when we contemplated the deeds of heroism and sacrifice for the flag, and the blessings which come to us from our relations as citizens to our country. If we have had concrete cases brought to our experience, as, for example, our property saved from destruction at the hands of a mob, or our lives saved from a hostile foreign foe, the patriotic sentiment will be all the stronger. So we may carry the illustration into all the sentiments. Our religious sentiments of adoration, love, and faith have their origin in our belief, in the care, love, and support from a higher being, typified to us as children by the care, love, and support of our parents. Pride arises from the appreciation or over-appreciation of oneself, his attainments or his belongings, selfishness has its genesis in the many instances in which pleasure results from ministering to self. In all these cases it is seen that our sentiments develop out of our experiences. They are the permanent but ever-growing results which we have to show for experiences which are somewhat long-continued and in which a certain feeling quality is a strong accompaniment of the cognitive part of the experience. THE INFLUENCE OF SENTIMENT Our sentiments, like our dispositions, are not only a natural growth from the experiences upon which they are fed, but they in turn have large influence in determining the direction of our further development. Our sentiments furnish the soil, which is either favorable or hostile to the growth of new experiences. One in whom the sentiment of true patriotism is deep-rooted will find it much harder to respond to a suggestion to betray his country's honor on a battlefield, in legislative hall, or in private life, than one lacking in this sentiment. The boy who has a strong sentiment of love for his mother will find this a restraining influence in the face of temptation to commit deeds which would wound her feelings. 
a deep and abiding faith in God is fatal to the growth of pessimism, distrust, and a self-centered life. One's sentiments are a safe gauge of his character. Let us know a man's attitude or sentiments on religion, morality, friendship, honesty, and the other great questions of life, and little remains to be known. If he is right on these, he may well be trusted in other things. If he is wrong on these, then there is little to build upon. Literature has drawn its best inspiration and choicest themes from the field of our sentiments. The sentiment of friendship has given us our David and Jonathan, our Damon and Pythias, and our Tennyson and Hallam. The sentiment of love has inspired countless masterpieces. Without its aid, most of our fiction would lose its plot, and most of our poetry its charm. Religious sentiment inspired Milton to write the world's greatest epic, Paradise Lost. The sentiment of patriotism has furnished an inexhaustible theme for the writer and the orator. Likewise, if we go into the field of music and art, we find that the best efforts of the masters are clustered around some human sentiment which has appealed to them, and which they have immortalized by expressing it on canvas or in marble, that it may appeal to others and cause the sentiment to grow in us. Sentiments as Motives the sentiments furnish the deepest, most constant, and the most powerful motives which control our lives. Such sentiments as patriotism, liberty, and religion have called a thousand armies to struggle and die on ten thousand battlefields, and have given martyrs courage to suffer in the fires of persecution. Sentiments of friendship and love have prompted countless deeds of self-sacrifice and loving devotion. Sentiments of envy, pride, and jealousy have changed the boundary lines of nations and have prompted the committing of 10,000 unnameable crimes. Slowly, day by day, from the cradle to the grave, we are weaving into our lives the threads of sentiment which has at last become so many cables to bind us to good or evil. 4. Problems in Observation and Introspection 1. Are you subject to the blues or other forms of depressed feeling? Are your moods very changeable or rather constant? What kind of a disposition do you think you have? How did you come by it? That is, in how far is it due to hereditary temperament, and in how far to your daily moods? 2. Can you recall an instance in which some undesirable mood was caused by your physical condition? By some disturbing mental condition, what is your characteristic mood in the morning after sleeping in an ill-ventilated room, 
after sitting for half a day in an ill-ventilated schoolroom, after eating indigestible food before going to bed. 3. Observe a number of children or your classmates closely and see whether you can determine the characteristic mood of each. Observe several different schools and see whether you can note a characteristic mood for each room. Try to determine the causes producing the differences noted. Physical conditions in the room, personality of the teacher, methods of governing, teaching, etc. 4. When can you do your best work? When you are happy or unhappy, cheerful or blue, confident and hopeful or discouraged, in a spirit of harmony and cooperation with your teacher or anti-agnostic. Now, relate your conclusions to the type of atmosphere that should prevail in the schoolroom or the home. Formulate a statement as to why the spirit of the school is all-important. Effect on effort, growth, disposition, sentiments, character, etc. 5. Can you measure, more or less accurately, the extent to which your feelings serve as motives in your life? Are your feelings alone a safe guide to action? Make a list of the important sentiments that should be cultivated in youth. Now, show how the work of the school may be used to strengthen worthy sentiments. End of chapter 14 Recording by Karima Redout